You're listening to Global Questions by YDS, an apolitical podcast that, as the name suggests, asks the big global questions, delving into topics that matter to you with the experts. From diplomats to humanitarians to students, I'm your host, Jen Marcocci. This is part two for our second episode on refugees and asylum seekers. Today, I'm joined with Erica Feller. And statelessness is now squarely on the agenda of everybody. We will be exploring her experience as Assistant High Commissioner for Protections at the UNHCR, as well as her work on refugee policies and displacement globally. You were in the Assistant High Commissioner role when it was the 50th anniversary of the 19... 19- 61 convention for... 51. 51 of the the statelessness. Oh, the 61 convention. The 61 convention, Mm. yeah, of statelessness. Do you think that that convention has really helped statelessness or do you think there needs to be a global compact? An interesting comment. There are two conventions on statelessness. There's the 1954 convention on the status of stateless persons, which sort of mirrors the 1951 refugee convention. Provisions are very similar, except that it deals with protecting stateless people and their rights. Then there's the 1961 Convention on the Reduction of Statelessness, and that's directed at countries, it's directed at states, and it's telling them, states' parties, that they have a responsibility to reduce statelessness on their territory, which means that if somebody's born stateless and they don't have access to another nationality, it's the responsibility of that state party to confer their nationality on the stateless person. Um, So you have one convention which protects the rights of stateless people and another one which tells states to do something to reduce the whole phenomenon of statelessness. These conventions were a bit moribund for years. They didn't attract um, very many states' parties and statelessness sort of fell off the radar and this is why I'm particularly concerned about it because when I first came to UNHCR and I heard that UNHCR had a statelessness mandate as well as a protection of refugee mandate, I said, well, you know, where is the part of UNHCR that deals with stateless people? There wasn't a part. It was a, a set of files on individual cases and it was something that states didn't like UNHCR to get too active about. Their view was that citizenship, which statelessness is partly about, citizenship is a sovereign responsibility of a nation state. It has nothing to do with the UN. They kept telling us, you know, stay out, uh, help us with refugees, people who have lost for a while their capacity to claim their rights vis-a-vis their own state. You help us deal with the refugee phenomenon, leave statelessness alone. That's our issue. It relates to our laws on citizenship and we decide what happens. So there was a push against UNHCR becoming too active and there were quite a number of refugee situations anyway to deal with. The organization was quite small with a small budget. It's fully dependent on voluntary contributions, doesn't have its own source of regular funding like the UN more broadly. So statelessness was not an issue that UNHCR got terribly involved in, except the occasional individual case and when asked some very technical advice on drafting citizenship laws. Interestingly, by the way, the first overseas, uh, overseas, the first uh, mission I did for UNHCR when I was very new and still on secondment from the Australian government was to Tajikistan. Uh, And this was in a lull in the civil war in Tajikistan. And they had a number of people who were both stateless and also displaced. 
and they were looking to have some technical advice on drafting their new citizenship laws to deal properly with displaced people. So I went to Tajikistan, fascinating. It was the first time they'd had anything to do with the UN and they flew me around to displacement situations in their little helicopters and things. Anyway, that's another story. Since I started with UNHCR, I had a concern that somehow the statelessness mandate was not being done justice to, you know, and there were too many problems out there that needed to be better addressed and more coherently addressed. So I pushed quite hard in UNHCR, firstly to establish a structure inside the organisation to which statelessness issues could be funnelled and centred, and then to build up a bit of expertise in the organisation on this issue, because most people knew about refugees, but they said, you know, don't know anything about stateless people. And then thirdly, to help create a funding line inside the organisation, which could be used specifically for statelessness issues, because UNHCR has a general budget, and it doesn't like any of its funds to be so-called earmarked for this particular thing or that particular thing, it needs, it prefers to have the flexibility to be able to deploy funds where they're most urgently needed, which is fully understandable and correct and needs to stay that way. But it does mean that you get issues which are a bit sidelined in the budgetary structure because they're not seen to be emergencies or they're not seen to be priority issues or because they're not on CNN and, you know, governments are not talking about them. So we did achieve eventually to corral some funds specifically for stateless programs and that opened up a lot more of activity inside the organisation in the field. The field officers became more interested when they had the money to deal with it, more interested in looking at stateless issues. All of this ran in tandem with a diplomatic effort and I spent a lot of my years in in. UNHCR um, on podiums, <laughs> uh, talking across microphones, uh, a diplomatic effort with governments to break down their resistance to UNHCR becoming more involved with stateless people. And over the years, that worked. I can't say it was because of me. I think it was probably a combination of circumstances. But I can remember one acrimonious debate with the United States um, delegation across the microphone when they were saying statelessness, this is called mandate creep. You're extending UNHCR's mandate beyond its original intention, pull back. Next year, United States across the microphone, we want to see UNHCR more engaged with stateless people. This is a very important issue. It's been forgotten too long. So there was a huge qualitative jump in approach. And when the US started to talk like that, other states started to come in. My suspicion is that the more complicated refugee issues became, the more politicized and polemical they became, the easier it was for states to deal with statelessness issues because they were less tendentious, less polemical, less dangerous at the political level, and states needed to look good as well. They needed to be seen to be engaged in humanitarian issues in a positive way. So statelessness issue, it became a bit like motherhood, you know. Mm. You can talk about it and become involved. And that was because a lot of these countries felt that that issue had little to do with them because they had 
because they had um, their own laws in order and they didn't have stateless people on their territory. So it was something that you found in Sudan or Myanmar. It was something that you found in Estonia and Latvia. Something you found in the Baltic countries after the Baltic, in the Balkan countries after the Balkan Wars, for example. So let's let's get into this and let's support it because it's not going to come back and hit us. It's not a domestic issue that we're going to be held to account for. So I think that helped. You know, I'm being a bit uh, suspicious here, but I think that did help. It gave states something to engage with which was less threatening from their perspective. Uh, but be that as it may, I don't care the reason it worked and statelessness is now squarely on the agenda of everybody to the point where UNHCR has even run this campaign for the next, I think we're three years, three or four years into it now, to eradicate statelessness within 10 years. And that is leading a lot of countries to look at what they do for stateless people. Many more accessions to these two instruments that we talked about. Um, and to take the instruments more seriously. So the more accessions you get, the more people take these instruments seriously, the more effective they become as a weapon, not the weapon, but as a weapon in the fight against statelessness. Before you talked about burden as well, and you touched on how countries in developing worlds or countries that usually take on or find themselves with a bigger portion of the um, asylum seekers, refugees or stateless persons. Why is that? How, how does that occur? Well, geography helps because most of these countries, most refugee-producing countries uh, or, or people who leave refugee-producing countries mainly just go across borders and stay there. They, they don't go further afield. In Australia, one has the impression that, you know, they're all this armada of boats waiting to uh, come to Australia. Not at all. You know, if you if you even look at the numbers of people coming into Europe these days, as opposed to the numbers of people coming anywhere in Australia, you see there's just such a, a gross discrepancy. Um, but the point is, most refugees are leaving their country in the expectation they will go back. They're not leaving forever and ever. Some are. Some want to go further afield, but the large majority want to go home if it becomes possible. So they cross a border, they seek immediate sanctuary, their situation is stabilised there, and that's where they end up staying. Sometimes they move further inside the country, they move away from the border regions, and they move to cities. In fact, something like 60% of refugees today are urban refugees. The image people have of refugees as refugees in camps, the large majority of them are not living in camps. They may have passed through refugee camps, but they're living in settlements or whatever accommodation they can eke out from somewhere inside cities or on the margins of big cities. It's actually a problem within a problem. That is how you reach urban refugees, how you protect them and how you assist them. When they're in camp environments, it's easier. Um, but the point is, the countries that neighbour refugee-producing countries are by and large, as I said, mainly in the developing world, and they have problems 
that make it extremely difficult for them to continue to host large numbers of refugees without more assistance. Um, it depends on the refugee situation, but if you look where most refugee situations are, you'll see that geography determines <laughs> that that is where these people are going to end up in neighbouring countries with very limited resources able to help them. When it was um, Kosovo, that was a bit different because the neighbouring countries were essentially European countries and the capacity to respond to them was a completely different capacity. Um, but we're talking about Afghanistan and we're talking about people leaving Afghanistan to go to Pakistan or Iran. We're talking about Syria and people leaving Syria to go to Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt. Uh, we're talking about uh, South Sudan, which again is in a state of terrible flux. So people are going to uh, the northern part of Sudan now or, or even to... Um, yeah, they're going to Sudan and then they're moving through, going to Israel, for example. Israel's become uh, quite a, an asylum country for Sudanese. Um, so if you look at where people, where the conflicts are, where the refugee-generating situations are, and then you look at the countries neighbouring them, your question, I think, is answered. Mm. With those countries as well, a few of them don't really have in the situation of Malaysia, they didn't have the legislation to support asylum seekers or refugees. Do you find that when countries don't have those legislative provisions in place, it's easier to work with them? It's easier to work with them yeah, when they don't you have... because you can help them with putting those provisions in place. And... Not really, but that's, that's the only time that question has been asked of me in that way. It's a very interesting perspective you put <laughs> on that. Most people will ask the question and they'll say, isn't it more complicated to work in an environment where there isn't a legal structure in place, where there isn't a legal system in place? I think it's because coming from an Australian perspective, our laws are so, and our government's so set, so... If the UNHCR was supposed to come in and we, we do ignore what they tell us, that we're breaching human rights law and we're breaching this and we're breaching that, but we don't care. So for me, when I looked at the way the UNHCR came in and actually helped Malaysia create those provisions, it looked like a more natural way or a more sustainable way to um, tackle the issue of um, asylum seekers and refugees. I, you know, when I said it's an unusual way of posing the question, I didn't mean that in any way as a critique. I actually meant it as a positive thing <laughs> because it makes you think it sort of reorients your thinking on this. I was posted in Malaysia, as you probably know, for three and a half years as UNHCR's representative there, and it was at the tail end of the Indo-Chinese outflow. Malaysia is one country amongst many in the Southeast Asian context and the Indochina context that doesn't have refugee-specific laws. It has laws dealing with immigration, and it ends up defining people who come in irregularly as illegal immigrants rather than refugees on the basis that there are no refugee laws. That has its difficulties when it comes to individual asylum seekers in countries like Malaysia because there is no legal structure that one can encourage the government to bring these people within because there's only the immigration law which makes them illegals. If there was a refugee law, you could encourage the government to bring them into the refugee status determination procedures and whatever uh, assistance and welfare arrangements are set up to support people temporarily while these procedures work. 
It's a problem in individual cases, but I have to say, in actual fact, what it meant was that UNHCR became the major support structure for refugees, and Malaysia was prepared to allow that to happen. So it actually assisted us, and you're right here, it assisted UNHCR to assist refugees as long as the Malaysian government accepted that that was part of the legitimate reason why UNHCR was present in the country in the first place. And what it's meant in Malaysia is that Malaysia is the biggest resettlement program for UNHCR anywhere. It has more people being resettled out of Malaysia than out of the large majority of other asylum countries. Malaysia hosts large numbers of uh, refugees from Myanmar, not talking, they have Rohingya, I'm not just talking about them, I'm talking about the uh, Chin, for example, or the Karen. They, they have large refugee populations. They also have a lot of people coming in as individual asylum seekers from, from uh, Somalia, from uh, Iran, from Pakistan, etc. And this is all permitted. And on top of that, Malaysia has been prepared to recognize UNHCR certificates because UNHCR can and does actually recognize refugee status in lieu of governments having in place procedures to do that formally in the national system. UNHCR, I think, is the fifth biggest refugee uh, status determination entity in the world. The others are governments, and it should be governments. Mm. UNHCR shouldn't have to do this, but it can do it under its mandate, and it does it in countries where there isn't a, a law in place. And that can assist UNHCR to find resettlement places. It can assist to stabilize situations even where there's no national law in place. But it's not ideal. It can mean that UNHCR. I mean, when it, when it came to the Indo-Chinese situation, that became a negotiated international agreement. So there wasn't domestic legislation in place, but there was a kind of international arrangement superimposed on all the affected countries, which everybody agreed to abide by. And again, perhaps that, to take your line of reasoning, that, that was helpful that there weren't these laws in place because there was nothing to impede the operation of what became an international burden-sharing agreement and which brought an end finally to the Indo-Chinese outflow and found solutions for everybody. So, yeah, I mean, give and take maybe when it comes to laws. <laughs> exactly. We'll move to climate change and how that influences displacement. Just in 2018, we've seen significant weather events from drought in Afghanistan to um, tropical cyclones in Samoa and flooding in the Philippines. What is the impact of climate refugees on stateless, statelessness? Well, there are many people, many purists, who will tell you they don't like the term climate refugee because mm. they'll say a refugee is a person who meets a particular definition, albeit an, ext an extended definition today, and climate as a cause of departure or a contributing factor in departure doesn't in and of itself create refugees. It can exacerbate a situation and it can be part of accumulation of events which leave people, cause people to flee. But 
whether it causes them to be refugees or whether there needs to be another regime for them, that's another question. Statelessness and climate change or statelessness and climate are increasingly likely to be linked. We talk, we hear about the concept of sinking states, you know, of Pacific islands disappearing. People will not have, in practice, if still in theory they'll have a nationality, in practice they won't have a state that will be able to assist them in any practical and sensible way. So they will be de facto stateless, even if they're not formally speaking stateless, because they haven't formally speaking lost their nationality, they just lost a country. I think people are starting to look at this very, very carefully. There's a lot of focus on adaptation to climate-induced events. In other words, encouraging people who are impacted by climate to change the way they live or to change where they live or how they live so that they can adapt to a changing environment around them. There's a whole group of activities around this adaptation. But there's also a lot going on uh, looking at the legal regime or if not legal in the sense of formal law, certainly the rights and responsibilities that should attach um, to states and to individuals when climate so impacts the capacity of people to live as they've always lived and they can no longer live that way, that they have to move. Um, and at some point, somebody will join the dots and they will say, okay, we haven't talked about climate refugees, but a long time ago we didn't talk about victims of violence as refugees either. Now we do and it's just normal talk. Maybe the time will come, we hope it doesn't, but it looks like it will, that people driven to leave because of dramatic climatic events, they will also attract the label refugee or they will attract at least the label forcibly displaced and there'll be a regime around forcible uh, displacement to protect them and to assist them. I hope that will happen. There's a lot of um, non-government organizations, a lot of academics writing about this at the moment. The UN, UNHCR actually provoked a, an intergovernmental discussion uh, which led to the Nansen principles because they were adopted in, in Norway and uh, on climate and displacement. And then that in turn led to an intergovernmental effort to review those principles and how they might apply in real life situations. So there's been thinking done on this. There's been an evolution of sort of standard setting activity in this area. But we haven't got as far as we need to go when it comes to really defining very clearly who is responsible for whom and why and to do what. And I think that's going to hit us in the not too distant future. Why do you think that there's such a negative spin on refugees or asylum seekers or even stateless persons? A negative spin yeah, here, you mean? Yeah, in the Western, Western world. There's a whole lot of reasons for some of them completely ununderstandable and some of them more understandable. Mm. The, I think one of the biggest challenges 
in the in refugee protection today for me is this identity issue is is the identity of a refugee changing so much that this person is moving further and further away from international instruments and what states are prepared to accept as their responsibilities uh, we talked about climate refugees we talked about victims of violence talked about internally displaced people they are all people forced for whatever reason to to leave or to change their life um, and you know may, maybe these are all in the end result these are all refugees classically defined or not classically defined but they're all refugees properly defined but unfortunately there are large numbers of them and the more categories you add the bigger the numbers become. You mentioned statistics earlier, 70, 70 million people in, fall within this sort of classification of forcibly displaced. States are saying, we don't have enough money, we don't have enough space, and we don't have enough tolerance inside our own societies to address this problem, to accept more and more people. So they're saying, look, you know, we have to limit this somehow. We have to be more restrictive in how we define who's a refugee. We have to be more conservative in the responsibilities we're prepared to accept because otherwise our societies are in danger of imploding as a result of all of these burdens that we're being called upon to take on. So there is a, a size question. There's an identity question, which is making it ever bigger, the, these responsibilities, by putting more and more people into this mix of who's displaced and who states should help. There's the growth of transnational crime, and that's a fact. And you have people smuggling, which have become... It's for some refugees, they have no choice except to resort to people smugglers. And UNHCR has always said that if there's no other way to get out, they got out at least. But these people are exploitive and they're dangerous and they threaten and in fact take the lives of many, many people. So this people smuggling problem has to be addressed very directly and has to be very, very much reined in to the extent it can be. But I think it's important to touch on that you're not denouncing it because it's an illegal way. You're denouncing it because it's unsafe. Well, I'm saying that is it's unsafe yes and that's a prime concern when you see all the people losing their life at sea but it's also very exploitive i mean people are making a huge amount of money and they're you know destroying the lives of people if not actually physically then economically and practically through all of this and it's also leading to many states who see it as an illegal activity automatically in their policies associating asylum seekers with illegality. And it's also compounding the problems, going back to this identity issue. Many people in, in societies like Australia, when they hear the word asylum seeker and they think about boats and they think about people smugglers and then they think about illegals, so there's, it's making these very unwarranted links between criminals, illegals, and asylum and refugees. And it's, it's, it's blurring the picture of who's a refugee, not only legally, but in the public mind. And it's limiting the compassion that people would otherwise have. They say, why should we help all of these illegals? You know, they're not refugees at all. So there's that. There's also the growth 
of international terrorism and states do have a legitimate interest in ensuring that people who come into the country are going to be people who are not going to do horrible things inside the country. It is true, because I've seen it myself firsthand in UNHCR, that there are many efforts made by terrorist groups to infiltrate the refugee and asylum environment. It's a way, and it's an access point to countries they may want to get into, and one has to be extremely vigilant. And UNHCR has actually now established a national security section inside its Department of International Protection precisely to try and prevent these sorts of issues um, becoming uh, a factor in the resettlement process, for example. So states are doubtful about a lot of people. Their, their first reaction is, can we trust these people? Who are they? Where do they come from? They come from countries that are linked somehow in the public mind with terrorism. Do we want these people in the first place? So there's that. There's also the fact that many refugee situations have become very protracted. And I think one, I think statistic is something that one in five refugees has been in a refugee situation which has gone on for longer than uh, 10 years. So, I mean, I, I don't quote me on that statistic, but the fact is that many, many situations are becoming protracted and states are starting to say, if we let all of these people in, and we're hosting them on the basis that they're going to get immediate protection and a solution's going to be found, and that doesn't happen, we are going to be left with hosting people for 10 years, 20 years, sometimes many, many decades. And that's a fact as well. So they're reluctant. They're saying, well, why should we be as generous as we have been in the past? You know, we, we need to find a, a better approach to solutions. We need more resettlement. We need easier returns back home before we even think of this local integration solution, which is what we're being asked to consider, keeping people here, but there's just too many of them. And So there's a concern about the protracted nature, the waning funds, the longer people stay in a particular refugee situation, the less money that refugee situation attracts internationally, and the more of a burden, if you like, it becomes on host countries. And then in the Western world, there's a whole range of other problems, which on top of all of this are complicating it, and that's the rise of populist right-wing politics, the fact that refugee situations have become a very contested um, political issue between different parties competing for power inside countries. Um, there's been a general swing to the right in a number of these countries and, you know, fear of the foreigner, whatever. So that has also led to a decline in what, in UNH what UNHCR calls asylum space, this space that's available for UNHCR to protect and assist refugees. It's contracted as a result of all of these issues. And then finally, there is, of course, the whole migration asylum complexity. The fact is that migrants, not terrorists, not uh, criminals, but would-be migrants, have also joined this transcontinental flow of people in larger and larger numbers, facilitated by people smuggling. And this migrant component 
is being seen by states as a different kind of problem to the refugee problem, one that shouldn't be dealt with in a refugee framework, one that needs a migration solution, not a refugee solution. And so they're trying to take migrants out of the picture, but it's becoming harder and harder because many refugees and migrants are all moving together and the reasons why they're moving are starting to merge. Yeah. Um, just as the final question, um, do you see numbers of um, stateless persons or displaced people um, declining in the near future or what are your hopes? I suppose we all hope that they will decline and we're all realistic enough to see that that's not happening. In fact, the numbers have just been going up year after year after year. When I joined UNHCR, we were talking about, I don't know, 38 million and now we're talking about 70 million. Um, I can't keep up with statistics. Statistics are a complicated issue anyway inside the organ in, inside governments, inside organisations anyway, counting people who are moving knowing where they are and how many they're there. And a lot of politics is played with statistics as well because, you know, the more people you have, the more age you get or the less people you have, the less right the UN has to come and meddle in our affairs. I mean, there's a lot of politics surrounding designation of numbers. But broadly speaking, the numbers have been going up and up. The numbers of stateless people, however, I think there are there is positive news on the horizon. And I, before we finish, I want to put in a plug here for Melbourne University because when I came here as part of this Vice-Chancellor's program, I set for myself the objective of leaving something behind at the university, ensuring that I had been in some way value-added to this, my alma mater, <laughs> this university. And statelessness was an area, as I said before, I was very interested in and I felt there was something that this university could contribute. Um, and to cut a long story short, uh, we now have at Melbourne University a centre on statelessness. And it is unique in the sense that it is the only centre for research, training and teaching on statelessness attached to any university. There was one at Tilburg in, in the Netherlands, but that's changed its character a bit. So this is a unique centre here. And it's going from strength to strength. It's been here for a couple of years now. It benefits from an extremely generous philanthropic grant from uh, an Australian businessman, Peter McMullen, and his wife, Ruth McMullen. So it's called the McMullen Centre on Statelessness. Um, it runs every year now an intensive training course on statelessness, which brings in people from the South Pacific, which brings in people from Asia, brings them from everywhere, as well as from around Australia. It hosts PhD students. It does a lot of things. It is starting to make quite a contribution. And with these sorts of institutes, with the growing awareness about statelessness as what it is and what kind of problem it is, with its growing acceptance as a problem for international um, cooperation and coordination, as I've said, it's been broadly, its acceptance of this has been growing. With UNHCR's added push through its eradicating statelessness in 10 years, which I don't think will happen, but I think it's not a bad goal to set, 
I do believe, and this is the answer to your question, I do believe that we will see a decline in stateless people. We are already seeing countries change their laws about women conferring nationality. We are already seeing countries um, setting up statelessness procedures. One of the problems in the past was you didn't know where a stateless person was because there were no procedures to determine who's stateless. There are refugee status procedures, but there are no statelessness status procedures. But some countries are now doing that, which is a real step in the right direction. Statelessness has is a subject now which is entering the statistics of countries in a way that it hasn't before. So the more we know about it, the more we can do about it. And if there's goodwill and if there's institutions like the McMullen Centre to sort of push this along, I think actually we're headed in the right direction. Thank you so much for your talk today. It was very valuable insight. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it. If we've sparked your interest or you want to hear more about a certain topic, contact us via our socials, website or the link in the description. This is Global Questions and thanks for listening.